Hi there, my name is Brad Elder, welcoming you tonight to another episode in a podcast regarding guidelines. Tonight's topic is uh, regarding traumatic brain injury, and specifically, we're going to be talking about surgical interventions and surgical options for patients with traumatic brain injury. There is a uh, recent uh, guidelines published on this topic that covers a, a broad range of topics, and we'll take a deeper dive into some of the subtopics within that paper. And I have one of the uh, authors and people involved in the project, Dr. Ryan Kitagawa, uh, who's here to discuss with us. I also have Dr. Carlos Alvarez as a resident uh, member of the podcast to uh, help with the uh, hosting duties with me tonight. So with, without further ado, I will turn it over to uh, Dr. Kitagawa for a summary. Well, thank you so much. Uh, as Dr. Elder said, my name is Ryan Kitagawa. I am the Director of Neurotrauma for UT Houston and Memorial Hermann Hospital. Um, you know, I've been involved in this um, you know, for, for the last several years and, and I'm happy to have contributed some to, to the guidelines that are, that are out there for us to kind of provide guidance to the, the general population in terms of how we manage these things. And we specifically decided to look at the surgical side of, of things. And there are two different parts to the guidelines when it comes to uh, surgery for the treatment of traumatic brain injury. Um, the first of which is of course, the, the guidelines for severe brain injury. Um, you know, this is a guideline that's been through four editions so far and is now what we consider to be the living guidelines, meaning that it's, it's no longer done by addition, but sort of a continual update um, that looks at um, what literature we have available and, and what's the best data we have in terms of the treatment for the severe traumatic brain injury. And the topics range from a lot of different things from ICP monitoring to nutrition and otherwise. For this evening, we're kind of looking specifically at the surgical side of things. And these guidelines really look at um, surgical decompression for ICP related issues. Um, that means that you know the patient is, is arrives in the hospital, is being treated as a severe traumatic brain injury. They have high ICPs that are refractory to most medical therapies. And therefore, when is the right time to decompress the patients and what is the literature suggests in terms of the outcome. Um, now, it is important to note that, you know, this is for the general patient population. You know, this it's, doesn't replace the individual surgeon's uh, um, clinical understanding and, and their own clinical experience when it comes to this. But what data do we have in terms of, of the outcome for the patients? Um, the second uh, side of things is the 2006 surgical guidelines, and that is specifically looking at um, um, not the secondary decompressions, but the primary treatment for traumatic brain injuries. You know, how do you treat a subdural hematoma? How do you treat an epidural hematoma? When is the appropriate time to do surgery versus when is the appropriate time to watch and, and you know, utilize more medical management side of things? So in a broad base, um, you know, the... Living Guidelines after the fourth edition uh, really embraced two different studies. Um, the first of which was the DECRA trial. It was a, a study that was done um, in, in the Australia, New Zealand area where they um, enrolled patients who had diffuse brain injury, not necessarily a particularly focal lesion, and were receiving ICP monitoring and ICP management. Once the patient reached what that, those authors considered to be a medically refractory ICP, they were then randomized to continued medical management, in most cases meaning pentabarb coma, uh, versus surgical decompression. And what those authors actually found was that 
Although the patients who had a surgical decompression had uh, lower ICPs and shorter uh, time within the ICU, um, they actually had a, a worse outcome overall. There are a varieties of critiques uh, of this study, um, you know, one of which is that they was felt that the patients were randomized to surgical versus medical um, pentobarbital uh, rather quickly. And their criteria was ICP uh, greater than 20 for greater than 15 minutes uh, over an hour period, whether it be continuous uh, over 15 minutes or, or intermittently over those 15 minutes, and then they were randomized. And one of the big critiques was, is that too early of a decompression um, for those particular patients? Um, the second of which uh, concern was, in all of these cases, they were doing bifrontal temporal decompressions for ICP uh, treatments. And in a lot of centers, my, myself included, would rather favor a, a large uh, unihemispheric decompression as opposed to the bifrontal temporal decompressions because of the, the complications and, and issues that are, are involved in that. And the third critique of this was that there was a failure of randomization, meaning that the surgical group uh, had more patients with bilateral non-reactive pupils and therefore was the worst outcome as a result of the failure of randomization or uh, as opposed to just the, the surgical outcome. And as a result of that, the guidelines did not recommend surgical decompression in the form of bifrontal temporal decompression for patients who have ICPs greater than 20 for greater than 15 minutes. The response to that was the second study that's uh, contributing to this, and that is the rescue ICP trial um, by Peter Hutchinson. And in that, it, it sort of responded to some of the critiques in that, uh, number one, it was at the surgeon's discretion whether it was a, a unihemispheric decompression versus a bifrontal temporal decompression. And number two, um, the patient was considered to be medically refractory if ICP was greater than 25 for up to, to one to 12 hours over that time. And so it was a lot, um, less stringent of a, a criteria. And, and I think that, that those criteria are what most of us in practice would consider to be medically refractory. And what that study basically found was that um, at six months, the, uh, looking at the uh, Glasgow outcomes um, scale, the surgical group had fewer deaths However, um, it had the, of the proportion of survivors, they had a higher number of uh, vegetative or severely disabled patients uh, along the way. Similar to the DECRA trial, they did find that the ICU stay was shorter and the ICP was much better controlled with the decompression. Uh, one thing that it is important to note in that the journal which this was published, in the abstract, you're only allowed to report your primary outcome, and that was the GOSC at six months. And, and what they found later on at a year, and really going into two years, was that uh, not only was there a survival advantage, but those patients who, who were disabled afterwards, the, the uh, bar was moving uh, a little bit closer towards a, a better outcome along the way. So, you know, I think that the take-home message from this is that yes, surgery does um, decrease the ICP. It does shorten the length of stay. There is certainly a possibility that although there are more survivors in, in the decompressive group, it doesn't necessarily mean they have a better outcome, but those of us who very much believe in, in surgical decompressions do believe that if you look at the longer term outcomes at a year to two years, um, there could be a, a um, um, not only a survival benefit, but an outcome benefit as well. And I think this is one of the very important situations of that this is the overall patient population that we're looking at. 
And this does emphasize the importance of patient selection prior to decompression. You know, if there are signs that the patient has a overall poor prognosis before you decompress, it is important to talk to the families, you know, versus those that have, you know, medically refractory ICP, but going into it had a, a very salvageable exam. You know, we believe that those are the ones who are, who are more likely to benefit. So, you know, that's where the um, general guidelines sit. The surgical guidelines, you know, obviously from 2006, it's been quite a while since these were revised, but, you know, I think the surgical indications still hold firm. Um, you know, they, they recommended things based on, for example, the patient's neurological exam, and of course, based on the imaging studies of, of the patient. So if you look at the section on subdural hematomas, um, they recommended a surgical evacuation of a subdural hematoma if it was greater than one centimeter in thickness. If the midline shift was greater than half a centimeter or you know, five millimeters, um, they recommended decompression in a patient with a potentially smaller lesion, but for example, a drop in the GCS of, of more than two points, um, refractory ICP, um, as well as um, um, signs of herniation. And so what they did in this, in this uh, guidelines is they, they gave recommendations for epidural hematoma, subdural hematoma, um, cerebral contusions, and then the, the outlier was sort of the skull fractures. But you know, really the most important take home message from this is number one, um, if there is obvious signs of neurological deterioration and signs of herniation, that's an indication to do surgery. If the lesion reaches a certain size and reaches a certain level of mass effect, that's at what time that, that we should be considering decompression on these patients. Um, and, and really those are intended to act much the same as the other guidelines as looking at the general patient population um, to allow us kind of a, a, a good guideline or at least a good starting point for when um, patients would require a, um, a decompression. Um, so that's kind of, you know, the, the overall summary of, of where the guidelines sit. And, and so, I, you know, we'd love to open it up for, for some discussion about, you know, what that means in, in practice and otherwise. Sure. Well, first of all, that was a, an excellent discussion or a summary of, of what you found. For me, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it, it seems that kind of the first half of what you talked about, the decompressive craniectomy, has a lot more controversy than, than the second half of what you talk with the, with the lesional uh, surgeries for, you know, with, with epidural hematomas. And you know, there's, there's a little bit better definition around when to do surgery for those. Would, would that be a fair statement? I think so. I think that is a fair statement. You know, how somebody manages refractory ICP uh, sort of depends on their level of comfort with the medical therapies of things um, and their own sort of prognosis prediction when it comes to, um, you know, the patients there after their head trauma. Um, you know, obviously after DECRA, the understanding was is that, well, we're really not helping these patients because they do worse, even though we fixed the number that, that they're really not doing well. And a lot of us who sort of live our lives in this have certainly seen our own anecdotal, you know, incredible saves of patients who have this, this incredibly medically refractory ICP that you do the decompression and they do, you know, wonderfully. Um, and so, you know, DECRA did, did cause quite a bit of controversy and that's ultimately what led to Rescue ICP. Now, our hope from Rescue ICP is that it would clearly show uh, not only a survival benefit, but a, a outcomes benefit and findings of this study sort of 
would support both sides of things. You know, those who believe that decompressions are just creating, you know, severely disabled patients can certainly look at the six month data and say, yes, that is, that is fairly consistent. Um, you know, those of us who, who truly believe that it is saving lives, but it's also salvaging, you know, potentially good outcome patients, um, you know, would argue that the later data would support these sorts of things. And, you know, this goes along with any study is that, this is a wide range of patients with a wide range of diseases, right? You know, traumatic brain injury is not just one disease, it's many different ones. Right. And so when you try to do a population study, you're missing out on, on the subtleties of, of these sorts of things. And so, yes, it certainly causes a controversy. And I think a lot of that depends on, you know, the individual person's experience and their own sort of biases and predictions in terms of outcome. Yeah, is it, it I mean, it leads to an interesting question, you know, are there any subgroups or cohort analysis is there is there any way of you know did anybody look at so everybody younger than 30 you know that there seemed to be more favorable data or um car injuries don't do well but sports injuries do well is is there any you know are there any kind of populations within uh, these trials that seem to do better with with surgery than others you know, that's an excellent question. Um, I don't know of any particulars that looks at the subsection. The biggest challenge with this, even though it was a very large study, had a very large number of patients, is that, you know, the more and more subs subsections of patients that you do, the more you water down the effects, the less likely you are to, to overall see an outcome. I mean, I think that most people would agree that younger patients do better. You know, those patients who don't have a whole host of medical comorbidities tend to do better. Um, you know, obviously epidural hematomas do better than patients with, um, you know, large cerebral contusions because it's obviously an intrinsic brain injury along with that. You know, I think that one of the other things that it's a challenge is that, you know, the, there are certain findings that, that would fit the patients into the, the study but then you can't reach sort of the, the subtleties of, is this patient going to survive? And so I think that's where you have to start with the population studies and then move more towards your, your individual patient thing. And you know, there are certain things that you know, we know are going to be bad outcomes with these patients. You know, if someone who is incredibly hypotensive coming into um, um, their, their admission, you know, brainstem hemorrhages when you see, um, you know, certainly herniation strokes uh, along the way, you know, there's certain factors that you know the patient is not going to do well. And there are other factors like, for example, you have a patient who is localizing prior to their ICP crisis that, you know, if you can get them through that, then it's a pretty good chance that, that they're going to do much better than the others. I want to give Dr. Alvarez a chance to ask a question or two if he uh, has any. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much for that very well well particular uh, summary. Um, I have one question. Um, looking through the the initial data as you as you talked about was on bifrontal decompression, and then they compared that to unilateral hemispheric wide decompression, or what we call the trauma flap. And I know that if there is an obvious mass lesion on imaging or there's obvious direction of midline shift that that should be sort of the target of which side you do the decompression on. But for all of those things, notwithstanding, if you have a diffuse brain injury uh, with refractory ICP, is there any uh, data or do you have personal experience that would suggest maybe decompressing the dominant hemisphere would lead to a better outcome? 
So that's actually uh, something that's that's often debated in terms of you know how you deal with these sorts of situations. I would say in my own practice, I do favor a large hemispheric decompression uh, over a, a bifrontal temporal decompression. Um, I find that the complications that result um, from the bifrontal temporal are a lot more challenging than than the uh, hemispherics. You know, for example. Um, when I do do a bifrontal temporal decompression, I do take the bone off of the superior sagittal sinus. And so you're obviously exposing them to risk of, of venous injury. You know, how do you deal with the, the frontal sinus itself? You know, the air sinus, do you cranialize that sinus? Are you going to add on that extra, you know, 20, 30 minutes, sometimes even longer to do that side of things? The cranioplasty is a lot more challenging because it's a lot of skin across the forehead. Um, you know, are you going to accidentally enter the frontal sinus when you do that? Are you going to accidentally Enter, enter the superior sagittal sinus when you do that. Um, the only patients in my practice that I still do bifrontal temporal decompressions are the large bilateral contusions because um, you know you have to de decompress uh, both temporal lobes to prevent herniation from happening. Um, the through and through gunshot wounds through the bilateral frontal lobes, if there's cerebral edema, I will do a bifrontal temporal decompression on that. Um, in, in my experience, the unihemispheric decompressions uh, tend to be a lot quicker. You know, you can get through that in, in you know, a couple hours at the most versus a bifrontal temporal that takes longer. The cranioplasty is, is a bit easier. Uh, and, you know, from the medically refractory ICP side of things, it's very rare to do a large hemispheric decompression and not have ICP control after that point. Um, so that's why I favor the unihemispheric. Is there literature that specifically compares one to the other? I don't know of any that, that do that. Um, I know that in, in the rescue ICP trial, um, it wasn't necessarily 50-50. I think still in that trial, it was favoring the bifrontal temporal in terms of just the percentage of those that, that are done. And that also comes from where these studies were done and the preferences of those institutions for doing that. Now, in terms of which side you decompress, which is sort of you know where, where your question finished at, um, obviously, as you said, if there is midline shift from one side to the other, decompress the side that is more swollen, okay? If there's an intracranial mass lesion that may not necessarily in and of itself be operative, you know, for example, if you have a temporal contusion, you wanna decompress that side to, to allow that to, to, to um, um, to allow that area to prevent herniation. Um, I favor doing the non-dominant hemispheric side. Um, I favor doing a right-sided hemicraniectomy on the majority of my patients who have refractory ICP um, for several reasons. Um, the first of which is if there is a surgical complication or an issue, you're, you've protected their speech and language on the opposite side. You know, if you cause bleeding, if the patient is coagulopathic, if there is some swelling along the way, um, you're, you're a little bit safer on that side. In addition to that, when you go back in with the cranioplasty and you're doing the dissection, you know, you protect their dominant, uh, their dominant side, you also protect their speech and language. Um, the other reason is that um, when you do do a, a decompressive craniectomy, um, obviously, you're relieving the pressure on a very quick time frame, and so um, there is concern that that hemisphere can become engorged with blood, and that engorgement can cause some element of neurological dysfunction along the way. And to avoid that, that's why I avoid decompressing on that side. And in addition to that, you know, post-trephination syndrome is a, a legitimate complication of, of decompressions. And so if you do a unihemispheric decompression, 
and the, the brain and the cerebral edema uh, relax and then the weight of the skin starts pushing against the brain. I've certainly had patients who become aphasic out of post-trephination syndrome and that of course um, can be very alarming to the family and it sort of escalates the urgency in doing a cranioplasty which you generally speaking, want to do that under the most controlled situations. So um, I don't favor the bifrontal temporal, I favor a unilateral, uh, and then I tend to favor the non-dominant hemisphere for, for the reasons we, we talked about. I think we have an, another resident on with us too who's, who'd like to ask a question. Hi, Dr. Kudala. My name is Rish. I'm one of the neurosurgery interns at the University of Michigan. Um, I just had a quick question, too. Um, you know, kind of a personal passion of mine also is the application of machine learning principles to neurosurgical research. And TBI patients seem like kind of the perfect case study for this, given you know, the importance of the clinical gestalt and how many different variables may contribute to their long term diagnosis. And I think there's both potential for supervising with all these expected data that we do have as well as possibly unsupervised learning to try and understand if there's specific questions of patients um, with you know, clinical profiles and specific characteristics that may benefit more from the decompressive craniectomy versus not. And I was just wondering if you're aware of any studies that are currently being undertaken to kind of pursue that line of prognostication or if this is still a need within neurosurgery that um, should possibly be further explored. Sure, sure. So um, I was basically asking if, if big data and machine learning has a role in sort of the future of, of neurotrauma, is that the sense you're getting? Yeah, absolutely. And if there's any studies currently. So um, I know that there are investigators that are certainly looking into this. Data are starting to come out as neurosurgeons, as a community become uh, a lot more familiar with and utilize these, these tools. Um, it's absolutely coming out as we speak. Is there any definitive, uh, you know, guidelines type of, of data out as of yet? Not, not to my particular knowledge. Um, but to answer your your main question of does it have a role or is there still a place in the answer is absolutely, and that is that is the next generation of studies for traumatic brain injury. The biggest issue that we've run into is that it is such a heterogeneous disease with a abundance of information, so much so to the fact that how do we synthesize all that information put together? And, you know, there's a lot of investigators right now that are not just looking at sort of ICP as a static thing, but more of a time and dosage of ICP. And so when you're looking at uh, continuous data over the course of minutes, hours, days, you know, compiling that and to be able to understand what what sort of things uh, do indeed affect the patient's outcome and what don't. And to have that against models that actually look at a particular kind of traumatic brain injury versus others. And then of course, you know, what, the, what we consider to be quote unquote, the next generation of TBI, you know, in, in the nineties going into two thousands was multimodality monitoring, right? And now it's, it's almost, it's commonplace for you to be doing brain tissue oxygenation monitoring, um, you know, SJVO2 monitoring and all that. How do you synthesize all of that information that's coming in all at once and get reasonable data to understand this disease process? Um, you know, that is absolutely the next generation of where we're at. And that our hope is that the guidelines in the future will, will not only just be looking at one simple thing, but you're looking at um, multimodality monitoring, 
you're looking at uh, cerebral autoregulation, you know, that, which of course is, is not a static thing either, that's constantly changing, to be able to use that, um, not only just to be at the bedside and say, okay, the ICP is greater than 22, we need to treat that, but more to synthesize and say, well, what is this patient's appropriate ICP for their level of autoregulation and their brain tissue oxygenation at this moment? What is the appropriate cerebral perfusion pressure to allow that to happen? And that's something that not only comes from studies looking at big data to understand that, but also comes from building um, technology that can give you real-time feedback in terms of that. And that that's, you know, the two sort of holy grails of, of neurotrauma is a, a non-invasive ICP monitor and individualized medicine based on all the physiologic variables that, you know, the human brain can't synthesize right then and there that we need technology to, to come with that. And I, I hope that that's the next generation of guidelines for that. And that's the next generation of us being able to understand this patient at this time, if they do get a surgical decompression, that's going to make the difference. Well, we're pushing up against our time limit. I want to thank uh, Dr. Kitagawa for a very lively discussion, a fascinating topic. And I thought that was a, an excellent presentation of the work thus far. We also want to thank uh, Dr. Alvarez and Dr. Joshi, our resident guest moderators, for uh, joining us tonight. Dr. Kitagawa, do you have any final comments you want to make for our listeners prior to ending the podcast? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that what we talked about today, you know, a lot of it touched on that. The guidelines are intended to show you what the literature supports for the general patient population. They still don't replace clinical judgment of this patient will benefit from a decompression versus otherwise. And the the next generation of guidelines will hopefully allow us to individualized medicine so that it's not only our own brain synthesizing this information, but all the technologies together to, to allow us to get the best kind of outcomes. Great. Well, again, thank you so much. And uh, with that, I will bid everyone a good night. Thank you for joining and listening to the podcast. We look forward to having you on future episodes of Guidelines Podcast. Good night, everyone.